0: Hello again, and welcome to Straight Talk, your intimate podcast of political thought. My name is Dean Flanagan, and today I have an interview with Josh Mahoney. Josh Mahoney is running on the Democratic ticket for the U.S. Congress, Arkansas District 3. Welcome, Josh. Hi, Dean. How are you today? I'm doing good. I've already got my exercise in.
1: That's great. Uh, I have not yet had a chance to exercise today, but I think I'll try to get that in before we go to Russellville this afternoon for the uh, Blue Wave picnic down there. We do so much that I I forget to eat sometimes, so, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Rhiannon, my wife, gives me a hard time about uh, not eating enough because I think I've lost 15 pounds already during the the course of the race, and we still got to go to November, so... (laughs) Well, you know, uh, as much pie as I've had the opportunity to, to eat, you think that I would gain weight because uh, the pie tastes great. You know, it's always homemade and everybody's doing different uh, events and parties and, you know, mom's recipe or grandmother's recipe. And uh, it's good stuff. Thank goodness. I love it.
0: Well, Josh, let's talk about politics. Um, you're running for the U.S. Third District of Arkansas. What do you believe you'll bring to our district?
1: Well, you know uh, So you know, I'm fighting for Arkansans and Arkansas values, and I think particularly in the third district because we've grown so much, we've got a lot of very interesting opportunities that are perfect for Arkansas, but also ask Arkansans to expect more from what they get from you know federal government. What we can do to provide opportunities for people, and right now I think we have uh, an elected official in the, the seat here who's not a partner and doesn't really have that vision of developing progress and opportunity for people in the third district, people in the state, and people in the country. For me, I have a big interest in education. That's very much in my wheelhouse from the time I spent at the uh, Arkansas Single Parent Scholarship Fund and my own family's history between the uh, Arkansas uh, House and Senate with my uncle who spent 36 years working on strengthening public education. And then also my mom, who was on the state school board, helped found the Murphy Promise in El Dorado. Well, I say found. She helped design that. She helped found the Education Foundation, which led to the Murphy Promise as well. They set up at the El Dorado Education Foundation chairs in the public school. So there's a math chair. There's a science chair. There's a uh, you know foreign language chair who coordinates what people are doing every day from the first day of school until they graduate. So they have a much more heightened, coordinated, and enriched learning environment because of that.
0: Obviously, education is a very strong support mechanism for pulling people up the economic ladder. However, not everybody's ready for college, quote, after 12 years of public education. What do you see about the Extension (laughs) Pass High School for Arkansas constituents?
1: Well, you know, I'll take that back directly to our platform and my experience at Single Parent Scholarship Fund. One of the projects I did there when I was chair of the board is I helped lead us through a redesign to make sure that we weren't just focusing on collegiate path, but also looking at industrial certifications and trades, anything that was going to get you higher skills to earn higher wages. And that took us a, a good three-year process of diving in deep into the jobs that were coming into the state, you know, what's affordable for people, where people's interests lie, and where the potential lies. Yeah, you know, I'm very proud to say too, this is a, my highest professional achievement so far in my life. Through our work, the Walton Family Foundation gave us 4.9 million dollars to uh, implement that program. When we start talking about education, I really do see education as a a workforce development program in a lot of ways. And so I would like us to start exposing our students in middle school to the possibility of going down a trade path, uh, of pursuing some type of certification that also has college credit associated with it, because I want people to be able to have a job that's going to support them. If that means that we need to start investing in vocational academies, junior highs and high schools you know, I want to pursue that. I think we absolutely have the opportunity to promote that, particularly in Arkansas in the third district. Uh, One of the schools that I I love that are doing work like this is in in our district, it's over at Siloam Springs. They have a vocational academy that got a lot of uh, the local businesses involved as well. The children there, you know, they learn how to code lathes. They learn how to operate the lathes. They learn how to troubleshoot it. They learn how to repair it. And they're already making over $100 an hour their junior year of high school. So they're graduating with that industrial certification. They're already making money. They already have the ability to save, and they don't have any debt at that point either. So if they want to do that for a while and then go to some, like a, a college path if they choose to, or any other path, they already have that trade to support them.
0: If they're making $100 an hour, they're not going to go to another trade. <laughs>
1: Well, and I agree with you on that too, but you know, that's just the. it is fantastic that we have those opportunities for people. And if it you look really at Arkansas, is.
0: you know, we do
1: especially well, you know, on the I-49 corridor, we've got a Fortune One company here. We've got some incredible supply companies and vendors in the area, but the district is rural and people forget that our district is rural. And so we want to make sure that everybody has an opportunity for a good paying job. And A lot of times, that good pay is not on a college path. The phenomenal thing about it, though, is anybody can be a welder anywhere in the third district. Anybody can be an electrician anywhere in the third district. They don't have to be where the corporations might be in Bentonville. So that gives us a lot of flexibility, and it gives people uh, a lot of hope for opportunity and growth in their lives and for their families.
0: Do you believe that a federal minimum wage increase is... Important step in broadening the economy for the non-college-educated worker?
1: I I believe so. Uh, You know, I think we have to figure out how to do it right. I really like a federal minimum wage that is based across uh, a cost of living model. Federal minimum wage in Arkansas may not be the same as it is in downtown San Francisco or in Manhattan. Yeah, and so, you know, that's a big challenge, but I think we can figure it out. There's always this pushback on raising the minimum wage. But if you look at everything that we try to do, whether it's making uh, higher education more affordable, one of the things in my platform, too, is being able to carry the same financial aid opportunities over to trades. All of these things are done to make things more affordable that would have actually been affordable you know, 30 years ago. What's really happened is we just haven't let minimum wage keep up with the cost of living or inflation kind of addressing the symptoms instead of the root. Yes.
0: Well, with the educational pursuits, Votech do we need new infrastructure in the educational system for those categories? Or is there space available in the current facilities to pair these up? Or do you know? I'm thinking about just well, where the federal government would step in to assist states in making that happen in building grants, program development? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you know, I, I think there's a, a very careful but interesting path here. One of the things that I've been very intrigued by was I've had some leaders in public education approach me about the concept of providing public schools some of the flexibility that's afforded to charter school. And, and that's something that we really Really have to put a lot of thought into because we have to maintain the integrity of our public schools. However, what that does allow us the potential of having, you know, offsite education or people that are pursuing something like a VOTEC trade or uh, you know VOTEC certification or something. We want to make sure that you know our public school teachers uh, continue to be accredited, back the education that they have gone through to achieve that. But some of those instances may be that uh, a great person to teach uh, at a vocational academy may not have a traditional education either that we might assume for a teacher. But having some of that flexibility lets some of those tradesmen come in to teach also allows the students potentially to be educated off-site and to use facilities that may not typically have been part of a public school system. That said, I always think that on-site is better than off-site. It's one of the reasons I'm very intrigued about the millage in Fort Smith right now. I think it's a great idea and I hope it passes. You know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, you see a lot of uh, the efforts they're making really coincide with where uh, my ideals on education are.
0: Yes. I think that we're heading in some good directions with millage increase in our end of the district. Think of the district mm-hmm. as a whole. What changes have you noted in your? career, life in mostly Western Arkansas, except during your foreign days?
1: The biggest difference, of course, has just been, well, I I say biggest difference. There's been a few big differences, but uh, I moved to Fayetteville in 2000 to finish school, and I just ended up staying in Northwest Arkansas because the area has grown so fast that anything I wanted to do or was interested in was here already with Walmart recruiting so much from across the country with so many immigrant families choosing to make Northwest Arkansas their home and build families here. We've got this influx of people over the last decade that they were already coming in, but I think that it changed from uh, the sink being left on to a a water hose uh, Mm -hmm. going full bore into the district of interesting people from all over the world. And uh, it's really made us a place of progress while still maintaining something that is uniquely Arkansas, where we're neighbors, we look out for each other, and there's a certain practicality that we have as Arkansans that I also see carried over with everyone that moves here, that I really appreciate that. I think with this growth, though, it also has brought a lot of people in who are smart enough to ask questions about, well, we have all this great potential here. Why aren't we doing more? You know, why aren't we investing in infrastructure? Why aren't we investing in sustainable energy that's going to bring more jobs throughout uh, educational paths and uh, levels? Things of that nature that I'm really proud of, I also think that's one of those things that will propel us to victory too. These are people that are looking for something more than what's been the status quo here. and right now, you know our congressman is, You know, just happy to kind of go along and vote with whatever he thinks the corporations want to do that day or the Republican Party. But it does not reflect the people of the district. And I truly don't think it reflects the values of our corporations either.
0: What have you heard from your discussions and listening to members of the district that they see as infrastructure needs
1: you know, uh, there's a couple of them. The One of the biggest ones, of course, is rural broadband. You know, I think you and I discussed it uh, other times, the importance of broadband access throughout the district as being vital to education. If you look at how anybody does homework that's in public school or a charter school or a private school, it's online. Uh, we have created some real challenges for a lot of people in our district because we're a rural district and not only that, we're a pretty hilly district. And when you start talking about rural mm-hmm. broadband, a lot of the services that are affordable, are line of sight, which we don't have a lot of because we have a lot of valleys and uh, it, it, it impedes that development quite a bit. But uh, you know, I visited with AT&T. I know they've got plans that are coming to fruition over the next five years, although I think we would probably all like to see that happen sooner. Uh, I visit with them about how they partner with businesses that come into the area to make sure that broadband access is installed. And then many of the candidates running, you know, Jim Wallace, Donald McKinney, uh, David Whitaker, also Gary Morris, we've all talked about options for rural broadband. And David Whitaker has really been a leader on that. He was in Colorado at a rural broadband conference uh, about six weeks ago. And so we've got people that are actively being educated on it and making the effort to bring that information back. And we've got people that understand what a necessity it is. And, you know, they'll push it at the state level. And uh, I'll certainly push it at the federal level, too, because the truth is it's not just the third district that has that uh, challenge. It's the heartland of America that has that challenge. And we need to make sure that everyone has access to the Internet for their own livelihood and education.
0: So the broadband has to be where the education is needed, not just where the votes are.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's frustrated me a lot through the course of this campaign. You know, I'll go out to some of the rural areas. They'll tell me they've never had anybody run for federal office come to see them before. It, it makes me curious. Sure, campaigns require you to spend time where the voters are. Yes. But the job is not spend time just there. The job is to spend time and represent every single person of the district. The, the message I get from that is that, you know, the person we have in office now is not representing everybody in the district. And uh, if you can't do anything for him, he's not going to do anything for you. And that's wrong.
0: Other developments in the district, there's been media about solar development, some wind development, the tie-in to the grid. There's easily could be a lot of federal play at that development. For our district, what's your ideals of Mm -hmm. sustainable energy?
1: Well, you know, I I think sustainable energy, particularly solar, is a great thing for us. We have all the potential to invest in manufacturing around the, the solar panel. You know, we produce aluminum in Arkansas. We've got a history of skilled labor and trades in the third district. We certainly have the factory space to start doing that in. And we've got major corporations, including a Fortune 1 company, that have a sustainability push and are looking for that support, but also the investment into sustainable energy. When you get involved with something like solar, it's not just pushing the the solar panels and asking people to consider that as a power source, but it also gets into an infrastructure because we've got a lot more battery capacity to store energy these days, too. So you have a lot of indirect jobs that come out of it through uh, electricians. And, of course, people with solar panels have their own certifications as well. But you get College Path in terms of managing these businesses and starting them. Here in Fayetteville, we've got Pika Solar, a company that whose founders developed a a patented way of improving the efficiency of a solar cell, and they're getting ready, I believe, to start manufacturing here in Fayetteville at some point. If you look at Clarksville, which is just out of our district, Bill Halter and Sunshine Solar partnered with Pika and the city of Clarksville to build a solar farm. What I look at that and see, though, too, if there is a farm that's got a field that's just not going to take any more – nutrient enrichment or be able to grow anything. Let's uh, partner with that farm to put a uh, solar farm on that particular field. I would love it if every chicken house in the Mm. state had solar panels on the roof to cut down their energy usage, because by the way, they also absorb heat, cut down their overhead. So, you know, there's a lot of ways to invest in sustainability that work for everybody and one of the things people don't know when we talk about sustainability, there's three parts of it. There's people and planet are the first two parts. But the third part is profit. So we're not asking people to take a hit on their finances. We're actually trying to put this in a way that is beneficial to everyone. We end up with a better product if we're growing chickens or things like that where the farmer has more money to invest in what he's doing. It also saves him money in the process.
0: You mentioning chicken made me just think of our agricultural base for the state, but also for mm-hmm. the nation. Yeah, There's both Arkansas and outside of Arkansas, but at the federal level, the Ag Bill is being discussed at this point in Congress. What do you see a role as a congressman in promoting agricultural development and trade? What are some of your ideals in agriculture?
1: One of the things we have to make sure, like I've got a great advisor here on the farm bill, a gentleman uh, that's from the university that just retired that spends a lot of his time advising on that, and he's been a great help, particularly when it comes to trade. You've seen the issue of tariffs come up, yes, and that is devastating to Arkansas, and it's devastating to a lot of the states in the heartland of the country, because many of us are ag states. When you see the people that used to buy our crops say, well, you know, we don't even care about your tariffs. We're just going to buy them from somewhere else. It is so devastating to every farmer and every farmer's family. If you're familiar with the overhead of farming, it's not something where they've got a lot of room to absorb a change in the industry. Uh, they get impacted very directly, very quickly. They can lose everything that they have because of a misguided tariff or an offhand comment about sanctions around farming and trade to a country like China. That we have to be so incredibly careful about that and make sure those relationships are there to maintain the business for our farmers. And that's something that I absolutely intend to do.
0: There's a large number of family farms that fail every year for obviously multiple reasons, including the personal interests of the family leaving the farm. But it seems a lot to do with food pricing and competition, both domestic and foreign, like Mm -hmm. you say. And the transition off the farm for those ties back into our education. That leads us to using immigrant workers on corporate farms and there's some of that in our district but there's also other immigrants that have settled in arkansas how many of those have you talked to and what are their needs
1: are you speaking of the farmers or the immigrants
0: immigrants immigrants that come here both for agricultural but other opportunities in a state that is close to the southern border but also a destination from overseas um, immigrants and yeah. they find a traditional ag landscape but then boom right around the corner like you said we have walton company and all the associated suppliers that have changed our third district so much but the immigrants right. are now part of our, our community so changes for them mm-hmm. occur at a Style or a different rate than changes for my children who were natural Americans.
1: It, it has been very interesting because, uh, actually, uh, let's go back to my opponent when he ran for the office of mayor in Rogers. Mm-hmm. You know, Womack very much uh, painted the image of high crime and blamed it on the immigrant communities that were enticed to come there to build families and work for our farms and our corporations and uh, of course it turned out that that was blatantly false but uh, you know he worked the narrative on it and uh, I've had a grudge with him about that ever since because uh, we've got good hard-working families here that have come to find a better life and I think that if you come to this country looking for a better life you ought to have the opportunity to stay and have pathways to citizenship yeah and I think that's the story of America you know, everyone came here to look for a better life. And the idea of immigration, as we can see here more recently, and uh, the last 50 years, the last 100 years is a, a new concept to North America. I say last 50 years, it, it, it's, it's fairly recent in certain contexts. And uh, it, it's time for us to start developing opportunities for people to become citizens, to not be afraid. I mean, one of the things that I find very intriguing about our district. I think we have an opportunity to be a leader on immigration reform here because our immigrant population, our families that have arrived here recently in the last couple of decades, their children are citizens. That you know, we need to stand up for all of them. But we also have to keep in mind that we participated in asking those folks to come here and work for us, and how they help keep up farms going and uh, a lot of our corporations successful because of that as well but you know the, the other interesting aspect of it is locally we, we don't make a, a big show about this but I think that we have made a lot of efforts to be a leader in an inclusive community if you go visit with our public school districts and the superintendents they will tell you everything they've done to include every child regardless of their citizenship when they've shown up their uh, background of, of their family, too, if they're documented or undocumented, and that spreads to a lot of our companies and our colleges in the area. But we don't talk about the strides that we've already made here. But I think we've encountered a lot of new challenges in terms of immigration that uh, you know we've addressed more than a lot of the rest of the country. Texas and California probably dealt with immigration in a different way for a long time. But I think that we're probably the new face of what immigration is like. Instead of being polite about it, being graceful to people from other countries and keeping it low key, we need to just go ahead and embrace it completely and talk about it openly and take those fights to a public forum for the people that made this their home.
0: The argument to be made is talk about it and work through it. And you Yeah. That's what you're putting forward while I'm hearing. One of your platforms is regarding health care. We've seen the start down the Affordable Care Act and the passage of the American Health Care Act, I think is the complete name last year. Where do you want to take health care?
1: First, I think we've got to check the Affordable Care Act as best we can. And I think we absolutely can do that. Uh, I also... I have a very, very strong belief in Medicare for All. For me, I believe that healthcare is a right. I don't think that anyone should have to choose between feeding their family or buying medication to treat an illness that one of them might have. To me, that is completely inhumane. You should not be, and this is a a problem that even people with good insurance face, be one illness away from losing everything you own. You know, my own dad uh, dealt with lung cancer. And multiple sclerosis, and he he died from complications relating to lung cancer. And we had a good life, and uh, we had good insurance, but you know that was still a, quite a struggle uh, for my family. And I, I see a lot of people where they're in situations where, you know, their budget simply cannot afford even the uh, deductible with their insurance. That just killed me. And as a first world nation, I think we have to make the decision: is healthcare care a right or is health care a privilege? Uh, I tell you, my opponent believes healthcare care is a privilege. He thinks that uh, insurance companies ought to be able to die for pre-existing conditions. He thinks that uh, insurance companies ought to be able to cap how much money they spend on you. But uh, I, I completely disagree with that uh, process. For, for me, it is a, a moral question and a, uh, the answer is simple is that healthcare is a right. That also needs to extend to our veterans as well. We need to make sure that the Veterans Association is maintained and that our veterans have adequate health care too. And, and more than adequate, it needs to be respectful of all the challenges that they have met in defending our country.
0: Well, one of the pushbacks to health care advancement speakers will hear is <laughs> how are we going to afford this? I mean, I'm not asking for a complete breakdown, but what are some of the ideals that you believe? are out there that would work
1: well you know one of the biggest things that i always go to when we talk about medicare for all or the pathway to something that is truly universal health care that i advocate for is a lot of people end up on disability because they don't have insurance they don't have health care to treat uh, an illness dr mcgee that's a uh, uh legislator in arkansas mm-hmm. always using as an example by the way dr mcgee is an uh, an optometrist, Mm -hmm. Uh, he had a gentleman come in to see who was already blind in one eye. He had been able to get health care under the Affordable Care Act. And so he was having issues with his good eye. He was able to come in, and it was was pretty rough, but he was able to treat the man. Conversely, if that man did not have health care, he would have been legally blind, and then he would be on disability. So there is a a cost-effectiveness and a cost-savings in doing the right thing in working to keep people healthy as opposed to letting people come uh, develop debilitating illnesses where they end up on disability and potentially lose their life and lose everything that they own, force their children into needing government aid. You know, if you start looking at the math behind this, and I, I think this is true of just about any topic we can approach, doing the right thing turns out to save money. Yes. You know, I I always get a chuckle about that, that it turns out when we do the right thing, uh, we save money and things are more affordable. But that's the truth of budgeting on anything and preventative maintenance. One of the things that I I like to point to when we start involving the the corporate side of things, uh, a lot of our corporations throughout the country will be given a hard time because hourly employees may not be able to quite get the 40 hours and thus qualify for full-time benefits and things of that nature. You know, if we had something that was provided health care for those individuals, that conversation would never come up. And uh, I, I find that fascinating. And I think that behind closed doors, a lot of people that run these companies are actually in favor of something like a uh, Medicare for all or single payer. I've certainly met that when I visit a lot of businesses around the third district. Uh, the small local businesses because they're like, well I can't afford to provide health care for my employees, but I think they ought to have it sure would be nice if that was already in place it would save me money you know and going back to the idea of making sure people are healthy and we use evidence-based health care, someone that is healthy continues to work and put money in the economy and pay taxes you know there is a benefit to everybody on that side as well versus someone being on disability who, now is not in a position to contribute to the economy.
0: You said it very well. Well, is there anything else that you would like to share with a listener today?
1: You know, one other thing that has come up periodically, and it's something that I'm passionate about, but I think is kind of gotten muddled in all of the, the rhetoric around the administration and everything is net neutrality. Yeah, I am absolutely for net neutrality, and I will support any legislation to restore it, any reasonable legislation, as long as there's not something wild added to it that has nothing to do with net neutrality, of course. And it, if nobody else sponsors it, I will. I think net neutrality affords equal access to the Internet, and when we start talking about education, when we start talking about small businesses, net neutrality affords the small businesses the same opportunity to use the Internet because the Internet is a new main street. And what net neutrality ensures is that we all get a place on Main Street. But when we take it away and we put it in a position where Internet providers can charge you more money to be on Main Street, we have crippled our local businesses. We've made it more expensive for people like you and I to use the Internet to educate ourselves. And a lot of people have turned to using the Internet as their sole place for entertainment Their sole place for education and everything else well when you start charging and making it look like a cell phone bill you have really hurt a lot of americans right off the bat yes so i hope that is solved before we get elected but if it's not i'm gonna work to fix it
0: do you think that the internet should be treated more like a utility versus a media
1: well I do, but I also I, I never liked the language around treating you know the, excuse me the internet as a utility. I think that that probably did the argument for net neutrality a disservice, but I understand why it was done and it, it was done for the right reason. But the the fairness of access is absolutely imperative and at a reasonable cost as well what net neutrality getting rid of it has done is essentially set the internet up to be a cash grab. I mean, my gosh, I, I did not want to get on the internet and find out that it charges me five extra dollars on my cable bill to use Twitter or to use Facebook, or mm-hmm. if I want to search something on uh, Wikipedia or another educational resource, well, that's another 10 bucks. And that's what this path is taking us down that Pi uh, and some of those others have pushed through. And it's time for legislation to correct that.
0: I think that was an excellent point to bring forward that it's a subtle element because it's not tangible. But Mm -hmm. we will see very tangible injuries like you illustrated if the providers have the green light at dreaming up ways to change the fee schedule. Just like Mm -hmm. the extra extra cost for your check Luggage. Exactly. Your peanuts on board the airplane. <laughs>
1: yeah. But, you know, uh, there, there are some countries that have done away with net neutrality, and their, their bills look like cell phone bills, where there's a social media package, a streaming package, education package, different things of that nature. And it, it you know, where it really concerns me, one is our, our local businesses. But, you know, when we go back to talking about rural broadband acts, if I'm a family, And I'm living paycheck to paycheck. The last thing that I want to be faced with is, you know, how do I afford the appropriate Internet access for my child to get an education in a public school system that I'm not supposed to pay for except through taxes? The Internet as a form of connection to public schools has happened. It's irreversible. And we need to accept that and build on it.
0: Well, Josh, I think that I've consumed a lot of your time today, but it was very interesting to hear from you and your ideas. And I want to thank you for being on the show. Your website.
1: So uh, my website is MahoneyforCongress.com. If you look for us on Twitter, I'm under Joshua Mahoney. We've got Instagram, Facebook, we're Mahoney for Congress as well. Probably the place where we're most active in social media is Facebook, followed by Twitter. We always try to post events that are upcoming there any kind of announcement, uh, new platform issues or response to news articles or things that my opponent has done, usually show up on Facebook first and then disseminate out from there within a day or so. Usually a lot quicker than that. Sometimes it's, it's just how it works. Please reach out. I, I always respond to emails and you'll find my phone number on the Facebook page and our website. And uh, I'm always happy to visit with anybody.
0: Well, thank you very much again. That's been so neat. Steve, thank uh, you so much for having me on. Every time I hear the people cry Don't you know that the man is gonna lie I try to tell them that they have a choice People
1: out there don't use that voice or You can be who you want to be Not in an oppressed society